Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, I let the cat out of the bag in my prayer, but we have taken a break from our Acts sermon series, and we have been focusing in on life with Jesus. And here's what I mean by life with Jesus, or why I think it's an important thing that we focus on as a church, because I think that when it comes to the Christian life, we tend to define it wrong. We tend to misunderstand it. Or even if we understand it rightly, perhaps we don't live in such a way that represents understanding it rightly. I think we reduce the Christian life down to we go to church, we try to be good people, we read our Bible once in a while, we help out with a various ministry here or there. If somebody asks us, what do you believe? What religion are you? We would say we're a Christian. But I think sometimes we, we focus in on these details that perhaps make up some of the parts of the Christian life, but we miss the main point, that the Christian life is about walking with Jesus forever. It's about Jesus and our life with him all the time, everywhere. And everything else that we're called to do, everything else that we desire to do in Christ, everything else that we think is the right thing to do, it all flows out of that life with Jesus. And so when we talked about when we introduce this topic, life with Jesus, here's the three things I gave you that perhaps might challenge our presuppositions or give us at least a little more alignment with what the Bible has to say about it. And the first is this, that our life with Jesus is all-encompassing. It's not one hour a week when you come to church on Sunday. It's not when you read your Bible in your half-hour quiet time once a day. I really hope that you're doing at least that. Um, it's not those things that we mark off, that we compartmentalize as our Christian life or our time with Jesus. Life with Jesus is all-encompassing. We are called to live life with Jesus everywhere, all the time, no matter what. The second is that it's modeled after Jesus' life with the Father. You know, if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, you see Jesus' deep, profound, and intimate connection with his Father. What he does, what he says, he relates those things to what he hears, what he's instructed by the Father. He comes with authority, not of his own. Even as the Son of God, he comes with the authority given to him by his Father. And all the while, he's making time to spend in quiet prayer and reflection with his Father, with that relationship, first and foremost, above anything else that he might do in ministry. And we are called to a relationship that's modeled after that relationship. And of course, our life with Jesus enables us to live the Christian life. We tend to, we tend to go for the fruit instead of remaining connected to the vine. If you remember that analogy we talked about a couple weeks ago, we want our church to grow. We want people to come to see Jesus. Uh, we want to minister one to another. We want to see prayers answered. We want to understand our Bibles better. Well, these are the fruit. And so going after the fruit, instead of realizing that fruit comes by remaining connected to the vine, nurturing that relationship with Jesus, a lot of times we find ourselves working from the wrong end. We need to focus on the basic matters, the first principles, the foundation, our life with Jesus through which everything else 
flows. Again, we tend to have the wrong idea of the Christian life. It's about living a good life. It's about going to church. It's about identifying as a Christian. It's about doing good works, making a difference, changing the world. And any of those things are good in and of themselves. You know, I hope we see all of those things happening in our midst. But again, that's putting the cart before the horse. If we go after those things, instead of realizing that all of those things flow out of our life with Jesus. So for those of you who haven't been here or who need a reminder, let me tell you what I mean by life with Jesus. By life with Jesus, I mean this. That mutual and intentional relationship between us and Christ through which we continually grow in our understanding and experience of his love, in our desire to be obedient to him and to be transformed by him, and in our willingness to be on mission with him. Now I'm going to say it again, that mutual and intentional relationship between us and Christ, through which we continually grow in our understanding and experience of his love, in our desire to be obedient to him, and to be transformed by him, and also in our willingness to be on mission with him. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about these things. So today we're going to be talking about growing in our understanding and experience of his love. So let me talk to you a little bit about the love of God. And I'm going to work broad to narrow because I have a feeling that, you know, we understand a lot of these things, but just understanding, just adding to our knowledge is not enough. How is our knowledge of God's love, our understanding of God's love, affecting our life with Jesus, our intimacy with Christ, our relationship with God. And so, or perhaps there's areas of God's love that you don't understand, or that we, we have, we've allowed some wrong understanding in, or perhaps we just don't understand what the scriptures have to say about it. And so we're going to look at a couple facts together today. And the first is this, again, we're starting broad. God loves all of humanity, despite their rebellion against him. So we in this room, if we profess faith in Christ, if we have a life with Jesus, if we've been uh, received salvation, if we have the Holy Spirit living within us, we're in a unique relationship with God. We're cognizant of our relationship with God. Meanwhile, out there, there's a whole world of people who either don't believe God exists, believe a different God exists, or something else exists in God's place, or don't care if God exists and have no concept of his love for them. But their ignorance of or uh, apathy towards God's love does not negate the fact that God does have a deep and profound love for all of humanity, despite their feelings toward him. And of course, the best passage of scripture I could give to you on this is John 3, 16 through 18. Here's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Now I'm gonna guess for just a minute that when I said that God loves the whole world, you're probably like, yeah, of course he does. 
But do you know that there's a whole world out there that has many people who do not believe that God is a loving God? In fact, Christians are often painted as those who believe in a vengeful God. Because, and here's the number one argument I get. If God truly loved people, then he wouldn't send them to hell. Have you heard this before? Come on, I'm not the only one. Raise your hand if you've heard that. My wife hates when I say that. Okay, I just want to make sure you're tracking with me and I'm not in this world all by myself. I get that at least once a week as I'm engaging with non-Christians. People believe that the Christian God is not a loving God because if you don't believe in Jesus, he's going to send you to hell for it. But this is not what this says. This is not what the Bible says. This is not what John 3, 16 through 18 says. Here's what it does say. For God so loved the world that he was willing to send his one and only son so that if we believe in him, we're not going to perish. We're not going to go to hell. We're not going to spend eternity separated from him, but we're going to receive salvation. But the fact of the matter is this. All of humanity is subject to the consequences of their sin. All of humanity is already under God's just judgment. All of humanity is already separated from him and destined for eternal separation from him. But God in his love was not content to leave it there. God in his love has extended mercy by providing a way out. And those who avail themselves of that are free, despite the fact that they've sinned and deserve eternal separation from God. But we see here what happens to those who don't believe. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Nothing new has happened. God has not judged you for rejecting Jesus. But instead, you have rejected God's gracious means of alleviating that which you've already deserved and you are already on the path toward. And so what we see here is that it is God who loves all people despite those who don't believe or those who are in active rebellion against him, he has done everything he can to secure salvation for all of humanity because he deeply loves all people despite their rebellion against him. We see this in other passages like 2 Peter 3.9. Peter's responding to Christians who are asking, why has the Lord not come yet? Now we're 2,000 years removed from the time of Jesus this is the next generation, and already they're asking, why hasn't he come back? The world is crazy. Where's my eternal reward? Where's the Lord? He said he was coming again. And here, we're 2,000 years, so we're a lot more patient than them, apparently. But here's what Peter says. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Here's what he says. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody will choose to receive God's grace, but Jesus will not come until the gospel has been preached across the whole world, until all those who will come to faith in Jesus have come to faith in Jesus, and then the end will come. We see that in Matthew 24, 14, in case you wanted a reference. But God loves in his desire is that all people would come to him and receive his salvation. You know, we see um, C.S. Lewis, actually, uh, C.S. Lewis says this in The Problem of Pain. He says, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful, rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked 
from the inside. And so C.S. Lewis is trying to explain, trying to understand this, uh, this notion of a good God, a loving God, and this eternal separation of those who don't accept him. He says, every opportunity has been given to them. The door to hell is locked from the inside. But God is a loving God. And so he's not going to force somebody who has no desire to be with him to spend eternity with him. And so the choice is ours before us. And so one of the things that we need to recognize as we think about this call to missions, taking the gospel out, evangelizing, a message, a message that you've heard from this pulpit and numerous places over and over again, why should we be concerned with sharing the gospel? Why should we be concerned with Envision Miami and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? Why should we, be care, why should we care about the lost? Because God doesn't just love the people in this room and other churches like it around the world. God is concerned because he deeply loves every single person and desires their salvation. And he has called us to be a part of bringing that salvation, the message of the gospel to them. So God loves the whole world, but guess what? Here's the next facet of God's love, that God is in a special loving relationship with the redeemed. We do, have, we're not just one among all the millions of billions of people who he's created, whether they regard him or not. That day we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we entered into a new relationship that God has called for us to have, that he desires for all people to have, but that we have entered into through Jesus Christ. And so we are in a special loving relationship with God. And it's easy for us, I think, to reduce our uh, the result of Jesus's death and resurrection down to our salvation, our forgiveness of sin, our get out of hell free card, or, or something like that. But that is so simplistic, so reductionistic, and I think completely mis misses the point, because God didn't just save us so that we could be saved from something. He has saved us into something. He has saved us into a new and special relationship with him, with the Father, and with the Holy Spirit. And if we're not intentionally availing ourselves of this relationship that he's called us to, then we are missing what God desires to bless us with and the means through which everything else that he hopes that we would accomplish comes from. And so let me talk to you for just a moment about this. We, I showed you this passage two weeks ago, but this is the, we're called to a deep and special relationship that's comparable to Jesus' own relationship with the Father. Here's what we see in John 14, verses 15 through 20. He says, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Listen to the closeness that we see in these terms that are used. 
So first of all, he, he's talking to his, uh, his disciples, his apostles, his closest followers on the night that he's arrested. And he knows that he's about to go and all the events of his arrest, his uh, crucifixion, and his going to be the, with the Father is soon to happen. And he's giving them this consolation. And he says, the Holy Spirit of God, who's been with us, who's been with you, will be in you. He's not going to leave you. He's going to come and be with you, an advocate for you, while I'm back with my Father. And so we see that through the Holy Spirit, we have this constant unity with God. But he goes on to use the same terms that he describes his relationship with the Father and includes us into that special relationship. He says in verse 20, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. When you think about the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, and to imagine that they have been in perfect relationship all three persons of the Trinity for all of eternity. And we, finite little human beings created at a point in the past, whose bodies will perish one day, and yet he has chosen by his grace to include us in that communion between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we might have that close a relationship with God. That's humbling to me. In fact, that's not even just humbling, that's hard to fathom. That God would be willing to do that even for us. We see why. He goes on to explain the relationship he's called us to. Do you know that he has called us in Christ to be adopted as God's sons and daughters? That we are called to literally be his children. That he loves in that capacity, in that way. We see this in numerous places in the New Testament, but here's actually in both the Old and New Testament, but here's what he says in Romans 8, 14 through 16. This is Paul writing. He says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Even that Aramaic word Abba there describes a, a, a deep personal relationship like a child calling out to their father. We are to be in that close proximity. We are sons and daughters of God. And that Holy Spirit that Jesus said that his followers would have, that we all have, if we believe in him, that Holy Spirit testifies to us, if we would just listen to him, that you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. What a wonderful relationship we're called to. And yet I think that for the most part, we go through our days, we go through our lives, not recognizing this amazing relationship that we've been called to and we're called to live within in every aspect and area of our lives. We are shepherded by Jesus. I don't have time to go into all the things I've put here. I mean, I've just, I had a field day with the Bible this week as I look at this relationship we're called to. Jesus is our shepherd. He walks with us through life. He says in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, he says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father's given them to me. 
And so again, we see this, this, that Jesus leads us. Jesus leads us. And even in the Great Commission, as he's commissioning his church to go and make disciples of all nations, he says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And these various elements are true of the relationship between God and those are, who are redeemed in Christ. We experience his love in a unique way from the rest of the world. And it saddens me that even in my own life, there are so many days when you just get busy, when you just go into autopilot, when you, you're, you're cognizant of all the things that are in front of you and all the things you have to do, and you don't recognize the fact that we are to live and to operate out of this relationship that God has called us to. Many Christians go weeks, months, years, maybe never recognizing the relationship that God has called them to and availing themselves of that. Let us not make that mistake. Here's something else about God's love. It's unconditional. Even though we sometimes worry that it's conditional. And I'll explain that in a minute. But God's love is unconditional. You know, there's not a whole lot of relationships in our life that we would count in un as unconditional, right? How many of you had a friend once and one, either they got on your nerves or you got on their nerves and you don't talk anymore? Sadly, some people have family members that have been estranged for reasons such as these. You know, it seems like there are so many things that we hold in a delicate balance, afraid that we're going to lose it forever. And yet God does not hold his love in that way. That, oh no, we might just do one thing too much. We might anger him on this day. We're going to catch him having woken up on the wrong side of the bed. We're just going to go a little too far. We're going to spend too many days, too many Sundays not in church. Uh, we're going to say something or do something and we're going to blow it. And God's going to take his love away. He can't possibly love me. But the Bible says the exact opposite of that. God's love is unconditional. We see this in Romans 5, 8. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, he loved us before we acknowledged him at all. While we were still in active rebellion against him. Knowing full well what we would say, what we would think, what we would do that would be contrary to his will at any point after coming to faith in him. He knew all of that, even before the foundations of the world. And yet, even before, even while we were sinners, while we were still in rebellion, he sent Jesus to die for us. We see 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. We see this over and over, including, including in the passage we read earlier in John 3, 16. We weren't seeking him, but God so loved the world that he was willing to send his son. Knowing our sin, God sent Jesus to the earth because he loved us. Even knowing the sin that we would commit in the future, after having committed our lives to Christ, he still sent Jesus to the earth because he loved us. So does that mean, it, i got to ask this question, does that mean it doesn't matter if I sin? If God's love is unconditional, if he's not going to take it away, does it matter if we just keep on sinning? Of course it matters. No, God's love is not an excuse to just sin. It means that God loved us enough to send Jesus despite our sin, yes. It means that God sent Jesus because he loved us so that we would not stand condemned for our sin. It does mean that. And it does mean that God loved us enough to not let us 
remain in our sin. We see this in Scripture. But that in Christ, he would transform us. He would sanctify us. He would cleanse us. He would even perfect us. And we read this in so many passages in the New Testament. You know, we get lost sometimes in the fact that we've been saved by grace through faith. Yay! God loves us unconditionally. But God didn't love us just so much that he would leave us there. God loved us enough that he would finish the work he began in us. That he would deal with our sin with us. That he would help us to, to, to be sanctified. That we might no longer be shackled to sin in our world, in our life. So that when we stand before him one day, we have been perfected. Here's what he says in 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from our unrighteousness, from all unrighteousness, it says. And so what is God's desire for us? That when we sin, we don't run away from him and hide. We don't just ignore it. We don't revel in it and keep on sinning, but that because we know that we face a God who loves us unconditionally, that even in the humiliation and the pain and the frustration of our sin, we'd come before him, our Father, and say, God, I did it again. I messed up. I'm so sorry. This is what I've done. I want to change. Would you help me? And he's faithful and he's just, and he will forgive us and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. We see again in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We had a chart up in Sunday school this morning when we were talking about our sanctification. And, uh, you know, we start out when we know Jesus, we're down here, you know, we're just a big hot mess. And, and, and this is where he's calling us to, right? This is perfection. This is uh, purging us of all of our sin. And there's a big difference between where we start and where we end. And we, we know the trajectory is this way. God, is, who started a, started a work in us, is going to carry it on to completion, Right? <laughs> but a lot of times our, our journey looks more like this. Victory, failure, victory, failure, failure, victory, failure. But eventually it's going to get there. We trust God for that, right? He's working that in us, that sanctification. But here's what it says, ready? That we're being transformed. That sanctifying process is happening, right? And we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, glory after glory. And so while we may in the thick of it, fighting this battle with sin along with Jesus, be frustrated by this process, he knows where it's going. And he's bringing us from glory to glory as he sanctifies us, transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And I think a lot of times we focus on, okay, I got to stop doing this. I got to start doing that. I got to stop doing this. I got to start doing that. I got to stop doing this. I got to start doing that. And what happens? We fall flat on our face and we get frustrated at the whole process. It's never going to work. I'm never going to overcome that sin. I'm never going to be good enough. Because again, we're focusing in on the do's and don'ts and not on the fact that our ability to be transformed, to be sanctified, to do better, if you will, stems from our life with Jesus by clinging to the vine, by prioritizing him. And through that, 
He gives us the capacity to be able to overcome these sins in our life. When we fall flat on our face, and like 1 John 1, 9 says, we confess to him, and he's faithful and just and will purify us our sins, and will forgive us and purify us of our sins. God's love is unconditional. He doesn't take it away because of sin, as if our sins surprised him. He knew we were going to do that before the foundation of the world. He has made provision for our sin to be handled in our life with Jesus. However, here's a common image. And maybe you've never thought about it in these terms, but I would ask you to reflect on your life and see if perhaps your actions demonstrate this kind of ideology. Here's the common image. A mountain of my sin between me and Jesus. So I'm here. Jesus is there. And there's this mountain of my sin, even now, that stands between me and him. And the more I sin, it just seems the farther and farther away he is, and the harder and harder it is to get back. You know, I've spoken to many people over the years who've had a season apart from the Lord and then returned to the church, and I asked them, you know, what happened? Why'd you stay away so long? And they said, well, I just fell into a terrible pattern of sin, and it became harder and harder to read my Bible. It became harder and harder to pray. It became harder and harder to come back to church because I felt the guilt and the shame and how could Jesus want me back? Again, that common image. Me on one side, Jesus on the other, and a mountain of my sin pushing us farther and farther away. But here's the thing. That's not what we're called to. Uh, We see this in Genesis, don't we? Right after the first sin is committed, what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. They don't come to God and say, God, I did this. We're so sorry. I can't believe I chose my way instead of yours. They went and they hid from God, and we are still hiding. What if instead of a mountain of my sin between me and Jesus, we had a different image in mind? This is one suggested by a book titled The Cure. The authors wrote this, standing with God, my sin in front of us, working on it together. I'll tell you, that's a biblical picture. Can you imagine it now? The mountain's still there. Raise your hand if you sin. Okay. Man, Jenny's going to tell me later. Stop making people raise your hands. You're right. I'm sorry. The mountain's still there, right? We haven't reached that point yet. We're still being sanctified. We know we mess up. But instead of letting it push God all the way over there, what if we recognize the fact that Jesus truly was with us that he loved us unconditionally, that he lives with us by his spirit, that he's, that he's trying to sanctify us if we would stop pushing him away and realize he walks with us and we deal with this together. That's the biblical picture. And that's what we need to recognize. Remember, 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God's love is unconditional, so don't let anything, including your sin, push him away from you. So what's the significance of this talk about God's love in terms of our life with Jesus? You know, earlier I defined life with Jesus as that mutual and intentional relationship between us and Christ through which we continually grow in our understanding and experience of his love and our desire to be obedient to him and transformed by him and in our willingness to be on mission with him. So I just want to make sure we understand this, that it is a mutual and intentional relationship. 
between us and Christ, and we are continually growing in our understanding of his ex- and our experience of his love. So let's talk about this for our remaining minutes together. So far this morning, I've spoken about God's love for us. However, since we're in a mutual and intentional relationship, right? That's a two-way street. It goes both ways. We need to recognize that there's a complementary component, which is our love for God. So what does the Bible have to say about that? I'll give you just a couple points. The first is this, that, God, that loving God is all-encompassing. I said earlier that our life with Jesus is all-encompassing, right? Tied to that is our love for God. Love for God is all-encompassing. It has to be. We don't always live like that fact is true, but loving God is intended to be all-encompassing. I'll use an analogy here that I think many of us in this room will understand quite well. Do you only love your spouse when you're physically close to them? Do you only love your spouse when you're at home? Do you only love your spouse on date nights? Of course not. And likewise, loving God ought not to be compartmentalized to we love God when we go to church, when we read the Bible, when we pray, or anything else. But oftentimes our lives look like that. If we had to look at our week, look at our day, and what parts of our day look like we are intentionally loving God, where are they? Are they only from 11 to 12 o'clock on Sunday or any other thing you do during the week that falls into the Christian category? Or are all of our lives uh, uh, an example of what it is to love God? In fact, our love of God requires all of me all the time in every context. Loving God requires all of me all the time in every context. We see this in Mark 12, 28 through 30, which Jesus is actually repeating something from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll give you this story, Mark 12, 28 to 30. He says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. I want you to think about the human composition for a minute. Think of the parts that make up you, the categories of who you are. We've got heart, we got mind, we got soul, we got strength. What's left? Nothing. In other words, everything you are we are called to love God. Not to give 20% of it, 30% of it, some of it, but all is repeated four times, one for every category. All our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. I mentioned this before, too often we compartmentalize, that's just our culture, I do it too, we all do this, right? Okay. This is the work category. This is the home category. This is the hobby category, the friend category. The, we, we, have, we break our life down and the things that go into any particular category. And most of us, right, as Christians, we, we'll give God a piece. And we think we're doing well if we give him a big piece of the pie chart of our life. He's got the biggest piece. God does not want the biggest piece of your pie chart. He does not want the biggest place of your life. He does not want the top priority in your life. That might go against everything you've ever heard. Let me tell you what God wants. He wants to transcend every category of your pie chart. 
He, he wants to be the top priority in every one of your priorities. Loving God and our life with Jesus transcends everything. It is all-encompassing. This is not only for the holy rollers, for the super committed. This is what every follower of God is called to. If you don't believe me, refer to the book. It's all up in there, front and back. Here's the second thing I want to just make sure we understand today, that loving God means putting him first. This should be self-explanatory. There should be a duh moment. But loving God means putting him first, right? Parents, how many times have you sacrificed for your children? Why? Because you love them, right? You put their needs before your own. Sometimes their desires before your own. Their well-being before your own. If you have one little piece of food in the house, who would get it? You or your children. It would be your children. We sacrifice, we give, we put others first when we love them. Love means valuing someone else above yourself. And here are some of the resounding accusations that come up at marriage counseling or an excuse is given when, marriage, when marriages end, right? Uh, I, I really shouldn't do this. This might be opening a can of worms. Pastoral counseling is available. Just give me a call. Uh, but here's just some of the excuses that I've heard that others heard. These are commonplace. My husband is selfish. My wife doesn't listen. He doesn't seem to care about my needs. She's always unmoving. He thinks he's always right. She always gets her way. Now, these are many different excuses, but what do they all have in common? They represent people who consistently put themselves first in a relationship before the other person. And guess what? Those relationships do not fare well. Do we put ourselves first in our relationship with God? Or do we put God first in our relationship with God? So how do we know if this is us? Well, do most of your prayers sound like a wish list, like ordering from a drive-thru? God, please do this. Help me with this. Heal me, heal me of this. Let me get this job. Please don't let that happen. That's okay to pray prayers like that, but if, if you look at your list of prayers and that's pretty much all you got, you might need to reconsider some things. Do your prayers acknowledge who it is you're talking to? Do you praise him? Do you address him with reverence? If you spoke the same way to a king or a president, would you feel embarrassed? Do you only pray when you're desperate, in trouble, in need? Do you only pray when it's what you're supposed to do? For instance, when you come to church or before a meal? These are important questions for us to ask. What then does it mean to love God by putting him first? It means prioritizing the things that are important to him. So it means prioritizing reading and studying and meditating on his word, the Bible. It means internalizing it. It means allowing the Holy Spirit to do whatever work he wants to do in our hearts and our minds through it. It means putting off the things of the world that stands opposed to the things of God. Even no matter how hard we cherish them, no matter how much we like them, if they stand opposed to what God wants for us, we need to put it off. Conversely, it means living life by the Spirit so that our life might produce the fruit of the Spirit that He desires. It means loving God and loving others. It means committing to God's people. It means committing to Christ's mission to the lost. As you read the Bible, it becomes very evident very quickly 
what is important to God. And so if you truly want to know, man, I remember when Jenny and I were at the beginning of our relationship, we would speak on the phone for hours. You could ask her mother. She was freaked out by the fact that she woke up in the middle of the night and Jenny was on the phone with some strange guy. It was me. I was the strange guy because we loved talking. I learned so much about Jenny in such a short amount of time and I was interested. I wanted to know. And it deepened my appreciation and my love for her as I got to know her better. If you don't read this, you can't know God better. But look what he's done because he wants you to know him. He has provided you with a revelation, with his word, that you might know him if only we would avail ourselves of that. And so we need to do that. And finally, we need to grow in our understanding and experience of God's love, right? This whole sermon was to help you understand more about God's love, but experience, that's between you and Jesus, right? And you need to do it. So how do you experience it more? Well, again, we're going to talk real common sense. Jenny and I on Friday got to go out on a date night. That was, I love that, especially because sadly, embarrassingly, it's been way too long. I didn't even realize how long it had been until we were sitting at a restaurant and walking on the beach and enjoying being together. No distractions. My focus completely on her. Her focus completely on me. I didn't even care about notifications on my phone. That stayed on the other side of the table. It was all about me and my wife. I love her. And man, I felt closer to her at that date night that I had in several weeks. We needed that. Why do I feel close to my wife? Because I'm intentionally pursuing her. I'm intentionally spending time with her. Do you see where I'm going with this? Like any relationship, it grows stronger when you're together, when you lean in, when you're intentional about it. I didn't learn anything new about Jenny at our date night. After being married for 20 years, you know a lot about the person. There's very little that surprises you. But spending the time with her, the things I knew about Jenny became manifest for me again in the midst of our time together. Jenny was always important to me, but in spending time with her, she was the sole object of my attention. Friends, there's times when you're going to learn a lot about God, and there's times when those things that you know about God are, become, are going to become manifest to you as you spend time with him. You always love God. You always appreciate God. But you know what? When you spend time with him, he's your sole object of your attention. And it's so much more meaningful. Friends, I shouldn't have to spell it out. If the extent of your relationship with God is I go to church two or three times a month, you have a problem. But God loves you and wants to help you fix that problem. And so we need to lean in here. Let this be the moment of our wake-up call. Thankfully, it's a problem that's easily remedied. Turn your attention to the Lord. He loves you.